This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to our show Professor Emeritus Michael Clare. Michael Clare is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College and the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine and a prolific author of many, many books on world security, natural resources, and peace. Michael Clare, I was thinking about you this weekend as I read a lot about Ukraine and, in particular, Vladimir Putin's position or statements with regard to Ukraine. And I fear that we often put our head in the sand and don't pay enough attention to what is obviously in front of us. I was thinking about that again this morning, reading about the results of the election in Italy, where a neo-fascist has taken the majority of the votes in that country and will be forming the government. With regard to Ukraine this past weekend, it was Vladimir Vladimir Putin's statements about the potential use of nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons, or maybe uh, more than battlefield nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And the United States' position seemed to be to kind of slough it off and say, well, that won't really happen. It happened if you were going to use nukes, you just use them. You wouldn't bluff with them. But I'm not so sure. You are expert in this field. I would appreciate your perspective and thoughts with regard to whether or not the use of nuclear weapons is a potential is a potential here in the battle for Ukraine in the war that is ongoing in that country. Help us understand, please, Michael Clare. Well, uh, good morning, Bill. Um, <laughs> a grim start to the week. Yes, well. Uh, Vladimir Putin gave a speech on September 21st saying uh, that he said two things that are important. He announced a partial mobilization, his words, partial mobilization of Russian reservists to bolster forces in Ukraine. And this reflects setbacks of the Russian military in Ukraine. Then he went on to say that um, he's deeply troubled by Western military aid to the Ukrainian forces and warned if they continue this sort of assistance, he was prepared to use any means necessary. And he hinted at, at the use of nuclear weapons at that point. He didn't really say nuclear weapons. He didn't use that word, but that was certainly the implication of his of his language. So I, I think we we are at a stage where the use of nuclear weapons is becoming increasingly possible. He didn't say what the trigger might for that might be. Uh, but implied that increased military aid for Ukraine from the West uh, would be a trigger, but not, you know, we don't know where that that line might be. I think the U.S. is taking this threat very seriously, Bill. Uh, on Sunday, Jake Sullivan, the president's national security advisor, said that should Putin do so, there would be severe consequences uh, without spelling out uh, what those might be, um, but but, seri- but obviously serious consequences. Let me ask you this. I'd like to go back to what Jake Sullivan said, uh, because I did watch uh, that interview or an, an interview of him on Meet the Press. There's another aspect of what is going on in Ukraine, and that is the vote, the uh, referendum. Uh, which is related to this. So bring that piece of the puzzle uh, into, into yes, focus this tru- for us. This, this troubles me a great deal, Bill, because, well, first let me say what's going on. What's going on is that uh, the Russians are conducting sham referendums in the areas, in four, the four areas they, they have, uh, four provinces of Ukraine, they have occupied Donetsk, Luhansk, uh, the Kherson area, and um, Zaporizhka. 
if I pronounce these right. Uh, and these ref fake referendums are, are going to say that we want to we want to become part of Russia. And as soon as the referendums are passed, then Putin is likely to say, aha, the residents of these areas want to join Mother Russia and we grant you your wish. You are now part of Russia. This worries me because under Russian nuclear doctrine, which uh, Putin has said, it says we will only use nuclear weapons in the event that we are attacked with nuclear weapons or if Russia is attacked uh, by overwhelming forces, conventional non-nuclear forces. So he could now say that Mother Russia is being attacked, in, including these areas that have just been incorporated into Russia by overwhelming conventional forces and by our doctrine that justifies the use of nuclear weapons. So this could be the pretext for his use of nuclear weapons. So th this is deeply worrisome. Aside from all of the you know, criminal nature of the referenda that he's holding, the sham nature of it, uh, using soldiers at gunpoint to force uh, Ukrainian residents of these areas to, to vote uh, in the referendums and, and to vote to join Russia. There's a fourth piece of this puzzle I'd appreciate your perspective on. And it may not be news in the sense that it is recently uncovered, but what I'm referring to is the evidence, new evidence of war crimes, of torture, of uh, simple uh, uh, rejection of all international and, human and humanitarian norms. Uh, I find it extraordinary that this is going on uh, by a major world power in the uh, 21st century. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but I'd appreciate what your perspective is with regard to that piece of this puzzle. So, Bill, I think all of this goes back to the fact that we're talking about a corrupt dictatorship of Russia. The, the, and, and it turns out that the corruption starts at the top and extends to everything, especially the military. Uh, on paper, uh, Putin had this modern, professional, capable military, but it turns out to be hollow and riddled with corruption. So money that was supposed to go for training of recruits and for equipment uh, obviously disappeared into the hands of the oligarchs in their pockets and their bank accounts and never went to where it was supposed to go. So you wound up with incompetent generals, uh, equipment that was uh, incapable of performing well and soldiers who were badly trained um, and the result is a, an army that was unable to carry out its missions and riddle and, and full of, uh, of um, untrained recruits now being bolstered by prisoners uh, uh, taken out of jails and forced to fight um, and mercenaries from the Wagner group that is uh, private military contractor close to Putin. Uh, so this is not the kind of a military that can perform uh, well and can perform under discipline in a disciplined fashion where they will, uh, you know, avoid, avoid uh, conduct, uh, carrying out these kind of bad behaviors that you described, uh, rape, and murder and theft, all of this and torture. Is part of this, and torture. All of this stems from from the corruption at the top. It's all part of a picture. That's why Ukrainians, in their advance in the north, were able to uh, move so swiftly because of the these failures within the Russian military. This brings me back to another question I had for you, Michael Clare, which is the number of recruits that Putin says he will uh, draft uh, in this, quote, partial mobilization. 
300,000 people. That sounds like an enormous number to be uh, an infusion of troops into the Russian army to be used in Ukraine. Or am I reading too much into that? You are reading too much into it because uh, when you begin with this corrupt system, um, that, that, that uh, corrupt and incompetent system, you're going to get a, a, a incompetent response. So supposedly what Putin said is we're going to call up reservists with military training. But that's not what's happening. They're grabbing up everybody they can get who looks like a male person of whatever age. They're not including women, but anybody who's male, um, they're grabbing up. Uh, whether they have military training or not, whether they're fit for duty or not. Uh, in, in many many cases, they're, um, they're focusing on minorities, minority regions of Russia. Uh, where, where corrupt local officials are, are, you know, grabbing up anybody they can, they can see. So these people are not fit for military duty, for the most part. And the trainers, the officers who are needed to make them fit for military use are either dead or are fighting in Ukraine. So this, this is not like the U.S. military, where these men are going to get uh, thorough training before sent to the battlefield. They're going to be given a uniform, a gun, and, and sent to the front lines where they're going to be useless or, or killed. We are speaking with Michael Clare. He is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. We're going to take a quick break. and we come back, I have this question for Professor Clare. What are we to make of the fact that Putin according to news reports, is now personally directing the military in the Ukraine. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Corsello Butcheria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Corsello Butcheria, the Italian-style butcher shop in East Hampton. The inspiration is a small family-run butcher shop in Rome. The meat is from local farmers they know and trust. Stop in for steaks and sausages, chops or chicken, or just a sandwich. Corsello Butcheria in East Hampton. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. I am Marco, and I am always been full of life, full of energy, and always on the go. At the age of 21, I was diagnosed with kidney disease. My life was saved by an organ donor. Receiving a life-saving organ put my life back into play, and I was able to move forward and make my dreams come true. Anyone can sign up to be an organ donor, whether you're 16 or 96. Be a hero. Be an organ donor. Register today. Register at registerme.org. Sponsored by New England Donor Services. Why work for just any hospital when you can work for Cooley Dickinson Hospital? Winner of the Best Local Hospital Award by the Gazette 2022 Reader's Choice Awards, and right now they're offering a $7,500, yes, a $7,500 sign-on bonus for surgical techs and first assistant surgical techs. On-the-spot interviews are Tuesday, September 27th from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Cooley Dickinson Hospital, North Entrance, Route 9, Northampton, or visit CooleyDickinson.org to apply. The Afternoon Buzz with legendary civil rights attorney from Ashfield, Buzz Eisenberg. Buzz will bring you his take on the day's news, plus arts, culture, and politics from the Valley weekday afternoons at 4. Brought to you by Lundgren Honda, family-owned since 1964. The place to buy your next Honda. Experience it in Greenfield. The Afternoon Buzz, 101.5 WHMP. Hilltown Families, a community-based education network in Western Mass, believes in creating resilient and sustainable communities by developing and strengthening a sense of place. Together, we are creating a new culture of intentional learning, one that is based in our communities and infused with local and personal values, supporting authentic connections through self-directed learning. 
each week online at hilltownfamilies.org. We identify embedded learning opportunities found in local events and resources, interpret the educational and social value of engagement, and share with our readers smart ways to engage in their community and with one another. When we make learning inclusive, accessible, and intergenerational, bringing people together through a shared interest and creating a shared history, we strengthen our sense of place and our sense of self. Join us at hilltownfamilies.org. Subscribe and discover your community while participating in the creation of a new culture of intentional learning. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, prolific author as well. Michael Clare, we have, Monty and I have a segment on the show that we call the Fish Wrap, which is today's newspapers, tomorrow's Fish Wrap. And we look not at the news per se, but at the placement of the news and how the media covers various stories. And in the New York Times in the last few days, there was a front page story about Vladimir Putin being directly involved and calling the shots, quite literally, uh, in Ukraine. And it struck me at first like, oh, that really is a story. And then second, my second reaction was, why is that a story at all? I've seen many, many photographs of uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Winston Churchill looking at the maps of Europe during the Second World War. I've seen the same photographs, or not the same photographs, but similar photographs of, of uh, the, the military uh, in Germany and Adolf Hitler uh, looking at the maps and directing various military operations. Now, I understand some of that may be uh, for uh, publicity and political purposes, but it seemed very real that the uh, uh, the commander-in-chief uh, for the country uh, is very much directly involved. We saw the same thing uh, going back to the Civil War with Abraham Lincoln uh, directing troops in significant measure. So why is this a story at all that Vladimir Putin is directly uh, uh, involved in this military planning and operations in the Ukraine? Or did the Times just, well, make a story out of a non-story? I think there is a story there, Bill. And, And I think it comes back to what I was saying earlier, that we're talking about a classic case of, of an emperor uh, or a king, or in this case, a, a dictator uh, who surrounds himself with, uh, with yes men, with, with uh, you know, an entourage who, who, who echo back to him what he wants to hear. And, and Putin surrounded himself with generals who said, yes, uh, Mr. Putin, yes, President Putin, uh, we, we, we have the capacity to defeat Ukraine, the Ukrainians are pushovers, uh, just give us a green light uh, and, and, you know, it just be a matter of days and we'll conquer Ukraine. Uh, those people turned out to be uh, utterly useless, incompetent and failures. A lot of them are now dead. And slowly but surely, the generals that that have survived and are in Ukraine have a much more uh, hard-headed, accurate view of what's going on there. And they could tell that uh, Putin's dreams of conquering uh, Ukraine are are, are, uh, not real in the face of the resistance that they're facing. So they, they, they want to... Uh, according to the Times story, which makes sense, they want to concentrate their forces in just two regions, Donetsk and Luhansk, where there's strong support for Russia and abandon efforts uh, to to spread out all, all over Ukraine uh, in, in the south and in the north, which makes military sense. But but. Putin doesn't want to give up his dream of capturing Udessa and, you know, and capturing a large part of Ukrainian territory. So he's telling them to, to, uh, to hold on. Um, he, although the generals have a pretty good idea that this is a crazy military strategy. So, so what you have now is a clash between 
Putin and his imperialist uh, visions and and so and generals who who have a much more realistic picture of the battlefield. That's that's my takeaway from the article. Does the division between Putin and his generals have an effect on the battlefield, or is, will Putin spread his forces too thin? and thereby cost him more territory? I think that's very likely. Uh, I, I, I think the, the place to watch is Kherson in the south. This is the furthest uh, westward of the Russian drive along the Black Sea. Uh, this is an area that, that um, the, the Ukrainian forces are attempting to surround and cut off the Russian forces there. They've destroyed the bridges over the Dnieper River, uh, most of the bridges, uh, making it harder to resupply those forces there. And it's conceivable that they'll be able to surround the city and, and capture the Russian soldiers there. That would be an enormous defeat uh, for Russia if it were to happen. Uh, but Putin doesn't want to give up the city. So uh, that's a place to watch. We heard a lot a few weeks ago about Russia wanting to have this connection to uh, Crimea, to have this land bridge to Crimea, which is the area of Ukraine that Russia annexed and made part of Russia, now going back to what, the Obama administration? Um, 2014, yeah. And... I'm wondering whether that is still part of the military plan of Russia and how that part of the theater of war is developing. Well, that area is further east, closer to Russia proper. Uh, so uh, that, that, battle, that battlefield is, is not being contested heavily at this moment. Uh, the area of Kherson is much further west from from that area, uh, and that's where the Russian forces are more exposed. And in the north, where they also drove westward towards the city of Kharkiv, and and that's where that's the area where the Ukrainians had their big success in the past few weeks and captured recaptured a lot of territory. I remember Michael during the. Vietnam War, the horrifying reporting that was done by the United States government uh, primarily, which was body counts. If we killed enough people, we'd win the war. Uh, and every day there were numbers that were disseminated by the United States government uh, and somewhat uh, by the uh, North Vietnam uh, uh, government as well, but really significantly by the United States government because body counts were the measure by which we were going to win the war, according to uh, then Defense Secretary McNamara. I, I'd like to know from you, if you can, if you can give us a sense of what the casualties have been, dead and wounded, for the Russian troops and for the Ukrainian troops, and if there are data that gives with that information what we are to make of those numbers. Yes, uh, Bill, bear in mind that, that the ratio in population is, is um, you know, uh, I, I'm making this out of thin air uh, because I forget the numbers, but let's say it's five to one or so, something that this. Uh, you mean size of the population, Russia to Ukraine? Russia to Ukraine. Um, it, it's six to one. I, I, I forget the number, but it's it's a huge number, uh, disproportional number. So uh, the figures that I have seen are that Russia has lost about 80,000 dead and the Ukrainians um, somewhere in the vicinity of 20,000 dead. But that, that sounds like a, a great advantage to the Ukrainians, but it's not as advantageous as it sounds because the Ukraine, because Ukrainian, Ukraine has much smaller population, so it's harder for them to replace those soldiers. And those dead soldiers are highly trained, skilled veterans of war. They've been fighting 
uh, in Donetsk and Luhansk for since 2014 in many cases. Uh, so those are those are serious losses for Ukraine and not easily replaced. And uh, I read that Ukraine is losing 100 to 200 soldiers a day, and uh, you count the count that up and that they can't keep they can't sustain that russia can uh russia can sustain the, the that level of losses uh because as you said earlier they can mobilize hundreds of thousands of additional soldiers to replace the ones they lost uh so we we, we have to look at that Bear in mind, there are also civilian casualties. The UN um, has given us its most recent estimate that something like 5,500 civilians have been killed, uh, 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 including 700 or so children in the war. And those numbers are mounting because of the shelling of cities on a, on a constant basis. So this is a very deadly horrific war that's going on. It's being fought in cities. Uh, this is not open, you know, jungle. The, 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 these are cities that are being shelled with, with civilians in them. It's a, so it's a very horrific, deadly war. Which brings me to the question that I have been wanting to ask you uh, this entire conversation. But I think we're going to have to take a break and come back, and I'll ask you on the other side if you can stay with us, which I would appreciate, which is about the reports of internal resistance in Russia, which seems to me in a dictatorship is really dangerous for those who would protest. But there is, in fact, a movement in Russia in opposition to this war, and I'd appreciate your perspective on that. We'll ask Michael Clare that question on the other side of this break. Stay with us. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Biden-Harris administration will host the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health tomorrow in Washington. Congressman Jim McGovern championed the idea of this conference and gave a preview of what to expect. Well, I know we'll hear from some of the cabinet secretaries. I know Secretary of HHS uh, Javier Becerra will speak, uh, as well as USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack and President Biden will speak. Uh, there'll be a number of panel discussions. McGovern says he wants people to have realistic expectations. But here's the one thing I want people to understand. So, you know, you do a conference and the next day you, when you wake up, it doesn't mean everything has been done or has been completed. I mean, the, the conference really is the beginning of a process. The, the real work is in the details and in the implementation on how you meet the goals and, you know, uh, whether there's follow up. McGovern says the conference is the beginning of a conversation and will set the goals and the parameters on how to implement changes needed to end hunger. The city of Northampton is receiving a AAA bond rating, the highest rating attainable. The rating agency said of the city's growing tax base, very strong financial management environment, and consistent financial results as positive credit factors. And bridge work will continue on Route 10 in Southampton today. According to the Southampton Police Department, one travel lane will be open during the bridge work on Route 10 near Riverdale Road until 3 p.m. Drivers should expect delays in the area. Pretty typical late September day with a mixture of sun and clouds today. Watch out for an isolated shower this afternoon, a high of 68 to 72. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low of 44 to 50. Sun cloud mix, chance for an afternoon shower again tomorrow, 64 to 68. Dry in mid-60s on Thursday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Los trabajadores del gobierno puertorriqueño intentaron forjar su propio camino para restaurar la energía el lunes, cuando aproximadamente el 40% de la isla se quedó sin electricidad más de una semana después del paso del huracán Fiona. A partir de la una de la tarde del lunes, el operador de la red de Puerto Rico, Luma Energy, dijo que se había restablecido la energía al 59% de sus aproximadamente 1.5 millones de clientes luego de la llegada de Fiona el 18 de septiembre. En ese momento, un huracán de categoría 
categoría 1 que causó casi todos los daños de la isla y 3.3 millones de residentes perdieron acceso a la electricidad. Los funcionarios locales enviaron trabajadores de la ciudad para reparar los sistemas ellos mismos el lunes. Vamos a salir a la calle esta tarde ya que Luma no contesta, dijo Luis Javier Hernández, alcalde de Villalba, un municipio en el centro de Puerto Rico. Hernández dijo que Luma no había comunicado claramente cómo ayudaría a Villalba a recuperar el servicio. Miembros de una asociación de alcaldes dijeron en una conferencia de prensa en Isabela, en la región de la costa noroeste, que otros municipios enviarían cuadrillas para levantar urnas y filas. Luma proyectó que el 91% de la isla tendrá energía para el viernes. Pero esta información se recibe con desconfianza, ya que tan solo en el mes de julio, cientos de personas marcharon en San Juan, Puerto Rico, para exigir que el gobierno de la isla cancele su contrato con Luma por los recortes de energía crónicos, así como los frecuentes aumentos de tarifas. A pesar de que se aprobaron aproximadamente 12.500 millones de dólares en fondos federales para modernizar la red eléctrica de Puerto Rico después de María, académicos y analistas dicen que los retrasos burocráticos, los desacuerdos sobre políticas y otros dilemas han estancado el proceso de gasto. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, prolific author. Michael Clare, before the break, I raised the question of another news story in the past week. And I wanted to know if this was sort of fantasy on behalf of the Western press or whether you think this is real. And the stories were about internal resistance in Russia to the war. Is that a movement or is this sort of a flash in the pan, something that the news, that the media picked up on and wants to make a, a bigger story out of because it fits our sense of what should be happening. Mm. I, I think this is genuine. And, you know, I think it's very similar to what's happening in Iran. When you have countries, dictatorships like this, where there's no free press, no opposition politics permitted, where people have no natural outlet for the expression of, of critical ideas, Uh, they reach a certain boiling point and you have spontaneous protests of various. That's what's happening in Iran, very impressive. And I think that's what's happening in Russia. You're having spontaneous, uncoordinated protests. This is not a movement in quotation marks, I think, but, but spontaneous anger at the regime. And it's coming uh, from several directions. I mentioned earlier, a lot of the um, uh, recruitment or, or forced recruitment, I should say, mobilization of troops is coming in Russia's ethnic regions. Russia has many, many ethnic regions and, 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 and uh, you know, autonomous republics within its territory, uh, like Dagestan. Where the, where the mobilization seems to be disproportionately higher than in more uh, traditional Russian areas. And uh, there's been a lot of protests in those areas that seems to be very spontaneous uh, against this um, disproportionate um, um, mobilization of, of, of people in those areas, poor people for the most part. Then you have the elites and in in moscow and st petersburg who thought that the war would never touch them and suddenly they find that they might actually have to pay a price for putin's craziness and those people are also protesting many of them are fleeing if they're young males uh, and they're not already in the military they're heading to the exits so these are all various forms of individual spontaneous protest Uh, to to a dictatorship where there there's no other outlets. Okay, so I, I get that, uh, but in terms of posing a threat to Putin and his regime, it sounds to me as if that's not what these protests are. 
So you're asking, is there actual a threat to, yes. to, to Putin himself yes. and his management? Impossible to say. Uh, if I were in the inner circle of his oligarchs who uh, have profited from, from, from the Putin dictatorship these years, I would be very worried. I would I would want to get rid of him and and put in a moderate who can turn to the West and say, "See, we're done with that." Except that Putin uh, made the oligarchs oligarchs. He made them billionaires. He gave them the resources of the country. Right. He gave them the oil. He gave them all of the metal. Uh, that's right. Totally correct. Uh, but now they see that they may go down with him. So uh, you, you have to imagine that some of them are saying we have to get rid of this guy, but whether they have the capacity to do that, uh, that's, that's very hard to see. They would, need the, they would need the support of the security apparatus. And so far as I know, the security apparatus is totally loyal to Putin. So this is going to be very hard to imagine a, a change in government happening. Michael, this guy... I, but, but we don't know what's happening behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that is unlikely to be reported. Let, let, me, let me ask you this, the final area I'd like to cover with you today, if I can. And that has to do turning from internal opposition to uh, international support or lack thereof. There have been many news reports about India and China, even Turkey, uh, really uh, taking back their support uh, for Putin's invasion of Ukraine. On the other hand, there have been reports about how support for Ukraine from the West uh, may well be weakening because of the European need for Russian oil and gas to supply its heating needs this winter. Those seem to be uh, opposite sides of this story, and I'd appreciate your perspective, Michael Clare, on which way those cross currents, where that's where they're going to bring us. Well, I'm I'm more impressed with the former, the fact that uh, some of those people who have been keeping Putin afloat, namely the the Chinese and the Indians. Uh, seem to be giving him warnings uh, that this can't go on much longer. Uh, this occurred at a meeting of something called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization um, in, um, in Kazakhstan, I think it was. One of, the, one of the former Central Asian republics. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization is a Chinese-sponsored uh, entity which now includes India in its membership and Iran and, and a whole bunch of countries that uh, met uh, a week or so ago and uh, Prime Minister Modi of India was there and um, Turkey was represented by President Erdogan and President Xi Jinping of China and Vladimir Putin came in for the meeting uh, and from what we know, uh, all those other leaders said to Putin publicly and privately, uh, your war is going badly and uh, you've got to bring it to an end. Um, and uh, we're not, uh, Modi said the time for war is over, stop. Uh, and he, Putin needs these countries support uh, to keep to keep buying the surplus oil and gas that he's no longer able to sell to Europe. So I think that's very significant. On the European side, yes, we, there are worries that publics in Germany, in, in France, and now in Italy that just voted are going to get tired of the support for their support for Ukraine because they're going to have to suffer through a winter with very, very high heating costs, crippling heating costs. Um, and so support for continued uh, European aid to Ukraine could, could drop. Uh, so how this will play out, it, it's hard to see, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the uh, comments of Modi and Erdogan and even Xi Jinping 
uh, telling Putin that that uh, he's losing in Ukraine and he should stop. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, prolific author. Michael Clare, thank you so much for all the time you've given us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. Join Mark Patrick Seminars and lose the weight guaranteed for only $49.99. Hypnosis designed to stop disordered eating and cravings. Also, you can stop smoking with Mark Patrick Seminars. Hypnosis can destroy your desire to smoke without cravings, irritability, and weight gain, or your money back. Join the over half million others who have attended. Seminars are Monday, October 3rd at Hotel Northampton. The weight loss seminar is at 5.30 and the stop smoking seminar is at 8 p.m. Go to markpatrickseminars.com to learn more. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com, and add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP, Your message at whmp.com. Hello, this is Mother Nature speaking. Well, speaking through me. You can just let everything slide until next spring, but I'm not going to be happy. I know you're busy. We're all busy. That's why you call Beyond Landscape. They cut back the perennials, deadhead the flowers, clean up the leaves and compost them. Maybe the lawn needs feeding or the beds need weaning. Oh, you'll get to it? Oh, really? Listen to your mother. Take back your weekend. Call Beyond Landscape. Book a fall cleanup. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillcorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com. Y hablamos español. Pregunte por Michael. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. I think this qualifies as breaking news. Headline, Monty goes to Washington. Monty, well, Monty, you are going to Washington. There is a conference at the White House, or very near the White House, sponsored by the White House, the Hunger, Nutrition, and Health Conference. Congressman, our Congressman, Jim McGovern, has been not only instrumental, he's been fundamental in organizing this conference, uh, the fight against hunger in the country, of course, being a primary focus of uh, Jim McGovern. Uh, Tell us what's going to happen at this conference and tell us what your hopes are for it. And then tell us how how you get to go. (laughs) Well... Congressman McGovern has been pushing for this for a long time. In the March for the Food Bank last year, a lot of what we were uh, asking for, apart from getting people to support our local food bank, is to raise awareness of the idea that a conference like this hasn't happened since the Johnson administration, since 1969. And out of that conference grew what we now call SNAP, food stamps. Out of that conference grew women, infants, and children. These supports that were built in 
to try to alleviate hunger issues. And it, it's been- Which we came pretty close to in this country. We came close to eliminating uh, hunger to food insecurity. Yes. And There's a great w- documentary called The Place at the Table, which features Congressman McGovern, which talks just about how we, how we almost did that and how essentially the Reagan administration came in and undid all of that good. And the idea behind this conference is that we could maybe get to that place again. Uh, the speakers at the conference, which is actually at the Reagan Center, ironically, right down the street from, from the White House. Wait a second. It's, the conference is at the Reagan Center. It was the Reagan administration that yeah. pushed back on these programs, yes. which got us back to the point where food insecurity and hunger was a real issue, a real problem uh, in the richest country on the planet Earth. Yeah. Instead of uh, working towards a common goal of making sure human beings, which need food to live, uh, would get food when they need it if they can't afford it. Uh, we started to hear rhetoric like welfare queens and things like that being tossed around in the 80s. And then this perception is built that if you need to rely on assistance, that you are lesser for some reason or another. And part of the March for the Food Bank, what the work the Food Bank does itself, the work that Congressman McGovern has been doing all along, is ending stigma. So there have been listening sessions all throughout the country, both in person and virtually, that the congressman and uh, Speaker Pelosi have been a part of, as well as other community organizers, people working with these human service agencies, people themselves experiencing food insecurity, and they're bringing as much of this to the table, pun intended, literally, as they can tomorrow uh, from 9 to 6 p.m. in Washington, D.C. I'm going as a journalist. I'm not presenting or anything like that. I'm just going to cover it. And I told Congressman McGovern, it's a whirlwind one-day thing. You know, I had planned to go previously and I then said, well, you know, maybe I won't. And he said, no, you're coming. I already talked no, no, to the White so, House. T- tell, <laughs> us, tell us how, how he said it. He was like... <laughs> <laughs> well, I want the accent. I want the whole okay, thing. Okay, so I was, <laughs> I'm in a play this week at the Shea. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, it's kind of a busy week. It's a one-day thing. I thought it might be like a weekend-long conference. I'd go for a day or cover a thing. And he's like, no, you're coming. I'm, ba- I'm inviting you to the White House. You should come. And he told me without so much... Uh, without quite that much pressure that, yes, and I've already spoken to the White, the White House staff about your coming, all that. So, uh, yes, I am going, but I'm coming going as a quote-unquote journalist. I'm more of an infotainer. Well, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, and it, the president is speaking it's at it. It's very exciting. Yeah, the second gentleman, the first second gentleman, strangely enough, uh, Doug Emhoff will be there. Ambassador Susan Rice, who's the White House director. Domestic Policy Advisor, the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, Secretary of Health and Human Services, uh, Javier Becerra, and Chef Jose Andre, who will be leaving Puerto Rico, where he's, his World Central Kitchen is making sure people who are in that disaster area have enough to eat to come and present to talk about the strategies behind what it means to bring food to people who need it. And that's the goal of this. The uh, White House has set a goal of ending hunger in the U.S. by 2030. And if you're doing the math, that's <laughs> not too far from right now. I think the realpolitik behind this is if the Democrats lose the House of Representatives and the Senate, a lot of these agenda items, because of that rhetoric coming out of the 80s, because of the stigma that surrounds what it means to uh, rely on food assistance, will be pushed to the wayside once again. I think that is a shame. There is no reason that this party that likes to align itself with Christian values wouldn't do what Jesus would have done, which is separate the fishes and the loaves and feed the thousands. So uh, that is somewhat disheartening, but I'm going to maintain hope that maybe out of this conference, people will hear a message that resonates with them where they understand that there is very, very, very little fraud in regards to SNAP. And the people that are using the the food stamps are not the ones that are committing the fraud usually it's usually somebody trying to make a fast buck off of those people that where the fraud comes into play so we'll see there's an aspect of this that your comment monty brings to mind and that is that large business interests agribusiness is not necessarily opposed in fact in many ways has been a supporter of uh, snap because the agribusiness wants to sell its products. And if fewer people are hungry and more people are eating and more food is being purchased, that's good for business. So maybe there is a common ground here between large economic interests and 
people who are hungry, and maybe that is just fantasy. It might be, but there's a, it's a good point. It's, it'll be good to find where we can find common ground. I think because nutrition is also an aspect, and health is an aspect of this conference, there's been talk about talking about food labeling. The differences between food labels in the U.S. compared to, say, the European Union, the differences in what are allowed into food in this country versus the European Union, there's a big gap there, and huge agro businesses are not keen on changing those regulations to inform people how much, uh, you know, there is some some labeling that goes on here, but the, the the amount of sodium that's allowed in potato chips here versus potato chips in the UK are, are vastly different. The number of food dyes and things of that nature allowed here versus there, vastly different. I think agribusiness is going to resist on on those issues because we want salt and sugar and uh, sweeteners. In everything, well, yeah. I don't know if we want it, but it's become a staple of the American diet. I think that's an oxymoron, but in fact, that is reality, and that leads to poor health. And you know, we are very ill-informed when it comes to nutrition in this country, writ large. Even our doctors spend a very small amount of time in medical school understanding the connection there. So, food as medicine is a big tenant of what they will be bringing to this conference tomorrow, talking about why like we have in Massachusetts, our program called HIP, the Healthy Incentives Program, where you use your SNAP benefits and you are, you are uh, uh, reimbursed when you buy fresh, healthy vegetables from a farm stand, from a farmer's market. It incentivizes you to buy uh, fresh, healthy vegetables. It's unfortunate that it's called SNAP and HIP because that's what feels like happens to me every time I'm going to walk on the march for the food bank that I'm going to snap my HIP. But the programs themselves are excellent. We're just going to move right along from that last <laughs> Not comment. if I snap my hip, we're not. <laughs> and ask you this. In terms of what can come out of the Hunger, Nutrition, and Health Conference in Washington tomorrow, that you are covering mm-hmm. as a journalist. An infotainer. Do, do you have hopes that there will be action items, that there will be uh, a movement of that comes out of this and says, okay, it is the United States. It's 2022. It's time to end hunger at last, at long last. Yes. Do you I have think hope? That's McGovern's hope, Congressman McGovern's hope. I know that there would be an outline, an agenda, and a time frame to say, okay, here are steps one, two, three. Let's see if we can do it in a year or six months or two years and, and, put the, and, and check in again then. This is really the beginning of a thing, not going to solve hunger in one nine-hour conference tomorrow. And if the political will is there... And maybe we can change some hearts and minds with political wills on uh, the other side of the aisle. Then perhaps this can happen. Although it puts even more import to the elections that are coming up this November. Very true. If I'm available tomorrow morning on the show, I'll reach out to you and see if I can come to you live from the conference itself. I still have no idea what's going to happen there, but we'll see. Maybe tomorrow. We look forward to it. Thank you, Monty. Thanks for being here and thanks for going there. It's happening here in the Valley. We're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to, you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station.